Church, good morning. <laughs> okay, let me try that one more time. Church, good morning. There we go. Our coffee drinkers in the house piped up. The faithful worshipers of God are here this morning. I love it. I love it. Welcome. We are so excited that you are here. Uh, you're probably asking yourself, who in the world is this dude who's up here teaching? I've never seen him before. How did he get a hold of a microphone? And his hair looks crazy, okay? So all of those, valid questions. So let me feel the need here. Uh, my name is Tyler Smith. I'm on staff here with our student ministry. I'm our high school discipleship coordinator, and I get the wonderful privilege of serving with students, families, and parents right across the way over here, and it is now Student Sunday. Uh, as we're looking at the Student Sunday calendar, we had Trevor in the slot to teach, and then somehow somebody hit a typo, and Tyler landed there, so you've got me this morning, okay? So I'm with you. I'm here. We're all in together. I love it. Um, well, today is Student Sunday, and our goal for this Sunday really just to orient ourselves around thanksgiving, around remembrance, around celebrating uh, just the reality that God has done a lot of things in the hearts of our students this past year and in the hearts of families, and we are so, so thankful. So that's kind of the goal and kind of what we're orienting ourselves around this Sunday. Um, we did a, a, a series with our students in the fall of this, um, of this past semester, and it was just two words. It was called Own It. That was the name of our series as we taught through the scriptures together with our students. It was called Own It. And the simple concept was this. We said, man, what does it look like to own our faith in Jesus Christ? What does it look like to be all in in our relationship with Jesus, to embrace him in every single area of our life? What does it look like to own our faith and to be all in with Jesus? And I, I began to look at the Gospels, and it's so interesting. As I followed Jesus in my life and as we encountered Jesus in the Gospels, his invitation to discipleship and relationship with himself is pretty simple. He says, if you were going to come after me and begin relationship, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. A call to humility, a call to suffering, a call to relationship. This is the road that a disciple must take if we were to follow Jesus. So the question is, what does it mean to be all in? I just got back this past weekend with some students that I took up to um, Black Balsam, which is a place in North Carolina where we went backpacking. It was awesome. We had great volunteers and great students. It was such a wonderful trip. Uh, but it reminded me of a trip that I took back in the spring with Trevor Miller, where we took some students to a place called Panther Town in North Carolina, and we had just 12 high school dudes. And we landed up here, long story short, in Panthertown Valley around 7 um, p.m. And we get there, we have dinner, we have a Devo, we're hanging out around the fire, and we're sitting here together. And then time passes us by, and it's 11 o'clock. At 11 p.m., our boys are getting tired, so they're starting to kind of sneak off into their tents and go to bed. And so me and Trevor have to go hang what is called a bear bag. And the concept of this is you get anything that smells from toothpaste to deodorant to food. You put it in this bag and you go and hang it about 100 yards from camp. So if a bear does come in the area, it goes to the bag and not to your tent. Okay, pretty phenomenal concept here. So we go and we go hang this thing, but we're sleepy and we get a little lazy and probably hang it like 40 yards away. You're supposed to hang it like 12 feet up in a tree, six feet over. We hang it like 10 feet up, two feet over. It's not good. The metrics aren't matching up. And we come back to camp around 11, 15 Trevor hops in his Eno, I come and lay down in my sleeping bag, we go to bed. This is where the journey begins. I, I wake up at 2 a.m. to Trevor Miller with his headlamp over my face going, brother, I'm going to need you to get up. There's a bear in camp. And I was like, I'm going to go back to bed, funny joke. He goes, brother, I'm going to need you to get up. There's a bear in camp. And I was like, oh, my goodness. So I'm like stepping out of my sleeping bag as he's talking. And we come over, and he's already at the fire. 
He's got the fire going, letting the bear know, hey, there's a presence in the area. We're here. He's lighting things up. And from like 2 a.m. until 7 a.m., I kid you not, we were like beating sticks against trees. We were like making noise. And by like 4 a.m., every single one of our students is up. So it turned into this pretty cool like time around the fire of us just being together. But from 2 a.m. to 7 a.m., we also heard homeboy like 40 yards away who was like at our bareback eating everything we owned. Like, dude was snorting, he was sniffing, he was growling, he was eating things, knocking over trees. And I'm like, dude, he's right here, man. Homie's just right over the brush, 40 yards away. And I'm like, this is intense. And so I was like, man, I have got to get a glimpse of this mama bear right here. Like, I've got to see her. Like, I want to lock eyes with this beast. And so about 6.45 rolls around, it gets just light enough to where it's kind of blue in the area. And I told Trevor, I was like, hey, bro, it's all right. I'm going to sneak around this little brush pile. I just want to see it. Like, see if I can see her in the area. So I come around. I've got my headlamp, and I cut it on, and I know about where the bear bag is and where she's going to be, and so I shine the headlamp near our bear bag, and all I see is this right here, a black silhouette of a big being just eating things. And I hit her with the headlamp, and immediately she goes, and I was like, oh my goodness. I was like, I want none of that right there. And it was like this moment where it was like the most pressure-packed moment I'd ever been in. It was so intense. The stakes are high. I'd never locked eyes with a mama bear like this. And I was like, she's for real, and I'm not up to that level yet. So I came up to the, I came back to the camp, and I told Trevor, I was like, dude, that is by far one of the most pressure-packed moments I have ever been in. Like the intensity of where I just was was like incredible. I've never countered something like that before. And I began to think about this idea of moments that are so pressure-packed, moments that are so intense. And I began to look at Jesus. And I was like, man, it doesn't matter what situation you catch Jesus in in the Gospels. It doesn't matter how hard the environment is or how uncomfortable the situation. Jesus models perfect faith. It doesn't matter how pressure-packed the moment is or how intense the thing he's going through is. He models perfect faith in the Father. He abides perfectly and he keeps in step with the Spirit. So if our question is, what does it mean to own my faith, to be all in? We have to go to Jesus. We have to look at Jesus because he is the perfect model of the expression of faith. Constantly, absolutely exercising total trust at all times. Jesus nails it. And so this morning, we're going to be in what I believe is one of the most pressure-packed moments in Jesus' life. We're going to be in Matthew 4, where we see Jesus be led by the Spirit into the wilderness to engage a very real enemy. And his name is Satan. The Father has led him here, and Satan has one desire for the Son of God, and that's that he tempt him to sin and ruin the mission of the Father. So this morning, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4 together in verse 1. And before we jump in, I'm going to pray for us. Father, I ask that you would have this time with us in the room right now. I pray that you would speak through your word. I pray that you would come alive to us, that we would see the beauty and the majesty and the glory of your son. Who he is and all of his beautiful character and how he is the faithful son who never fails. Help us to exalt him this morning, to lift him up and that he and he alone would sit on the throne of our hearts. I pray these things in the name of your son. Amen. Well, before we jump into Matthew 4, which is, again, 
pressure packed. Before we get here, I want to take us to the first movement that we see in Matthew's gospel of really Jesus's adult life. In Jesus' adult life, he meets a man named John the Baptist, and John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And John the Baptist is a pretty gnarly dude. He's like the Bear grills of present day, okay? Like, dude grew up in the wilderness, like ate wild locusts and honey, long beard, like dude did it, okay? I wish we had him in the wilderness with us when we saw the bear. So Jesus goes to John the Baptist, and anytime John the Baptist got near Jesus, he would just proclaim, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist had a right and clear view of Jesus when most people missed it. John the Baptist goes, I know who this man is. He's the son of God, and he is the one who has come to rescue Israel. And then when Jesus would get even nearer to, to John the Baptist, John the Baptist would fall at his knees and he'd go, man, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie the sandals of this man. I know who he is. He's the son of God. And Jesus comes to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And as Jesus is going down in the water, and as he immediately comes back up, the heavens tear open. And we see the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus as a dove and anoints him for ministry, the Spirit anointed Messiah. And then we hear the voice from heaven that booms all over the place. He says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The father declares and proclaims over his son, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus' identity declared to everyone that day. What was it like to be at the Jordan River? Immediately after this, we move into chapter 4, where Matthew writes, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, Mark's gospel says Jesus wasn't just led into the wilderness. He was driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Jesus coming to the wilderness, there's a very set plan and purpose set about by the Father of why Jesus is here and what's going to happen and take place in this pressure-packed moment. See, Israel, when we reach back in the scriptures and study their story, as God delivered them and set them free from Egypt, they passed through the waters of the Red Sea. And immediately were taken into the wilderness for the sake of God, testing their hearts to see if they would keep his commandments or not. Will they depend upon me? Will they love me? Or will they rebel and disobey? God using the wilderness as a testing time. And in the same way, we watch Jesus pass through the rivers of the Jordan as he now enters into the wilderness. Jesus' story reflecting that of Israel's, will this son be faithful? He's led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, the enemy. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Matthew gives us such a beautiful window into the humanity of Jesus. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights and fasting this idea of laying something down that's lesser in order to have something better and greater. So I leave food for a while in order to have intimacy with the Father. And Jesus has been doing this for 40 days and 40 nights. And Matthew says he's hungry. The humanity of Jesus on display. Jesus is hungry for 40 days and 40 nights. He's eating nothing. And sometimes we lose it if we don't hit Mo's on Monday, bro. You better catch it, okay? There was no Mo's here. 40 days and 40 nights, nothing. I mean, his body is tired. His body is hungry inside. His body is yelling, I need food. And Satan comes to him in this moment where Jesus is most frail, where Jesus is most weak, where Jesus is most tired. And I think his disciples, Satan does the same thing with us. I'll come when they're weak, and I'll get them then. 
A call to disciples to be awake may be in our hardest moments. Verse 3, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan comes and prays on Jesus. Jesus, I know you're hungry. And if you really are the son, if that really is your identity, like I heard at the Jordan, then brother, turn these stones into a couple loaves of bread so you can eat. It's easy, Jesus. Make it happen. You're hungry. Just do it, brother. Go for it. And Jesus says, man doesn't live by bread alone, by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is the embodiment of Psalm 1 where we see the man who meditates upon the law of the Lord day and night. In the moment where Jesus' physical appetite is through the roof, he goes, no, I need God's word that sustains my soul and guides me into obedience like nothing else can. God's word fuels me and sustains me in my hardest moments. Jesus is quoting scripture here, and he will quote scripture for the next three temptations. It's his weapon against the enemy. And it's the weapon for the believer now against the enemy. When his physical appetite is yelling loudest, he hears the voice of his father even louder. The father's voice is what is driving Jesus. The father's voice is what is sustaining Jesus. And it's the same for us as disciples. We have so many voices yelling at us, the voice of culture, the voice of social media, the voice of friends, or the voice of people in the workplace. And very often we can get distracted and lose where we're headed. The disciple of Jesus relies on the voice of the Father to guide him in every single moment. The Father is who leads us. The Father is who guides us. The Father is who shepherds us. And Jesus is abiding. He is depending upon the Father in his hardest moment. And this is discipleship. Moving from self-sufficiency to dependency, saying, God, I need you. I want to take just a moment and talk about the Bible itself for just a second, just the nature of the Bible. So often I encounter people who say, man, I wish I could just hear from God. Like, I wish God would talk to me. I wish in some way he would communicate to me. I could hear from him, have like a, a Moses in the burning bush encounter. When we come to this book, there is no other book in the entire universe like this book. This book is extraordinary. It's supernatural. It's God-breathed. When we come here, we get pages and pages of God's thoughts, God's heart, God's words, God's voice. I don't have to ask for God to speak to me. He's already spoken to me right here. This is the doorway through which I meet Jesus. This is the window through which I see God in this for the Christian is where we build our life. Called to build our life on the word of God, that he would be our foundation. So Jesus passes the temptation where Israel fails. Israel rebels, they disobey, Jesus here succeeds. Even in the midst of a pressure-packed moment. Verse 5, we see the scene change here. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, Satan takes Jesus to the height of the temple. 
in Jerusalem, the, the epicenter of everything religious and political, and sets him on the height of the temple. And I'd have struggled here because I don't like heights, okay? But Satan has got Jesus high here, okay? And he says, hey, you're the, you're the son of God, right? Like, that's your identity. I did hear that right at the, at the river. Well, hey, why don't you throw yourself off the temple here, right? Because you know that your father in heaven will come and save you. Like, just throw yourself off. You think by any chance the Father in heaven who's watching us would at all let you even stub a toe, Jesus? I don't think so. Do it, man. The crowds will love you. You'll have the masses flocking to you. It'll be an amazing, spectacular miracle. Jesus, perform. This is the temptation that Satan is trying to prey on Jesus with, enticing Jesus to sin and no longer be the sinless Savior or the faithful Son We can take our place. And Jesus responds. He says, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I want to use an analogy here that will hopefully help us understand the heart of this temptation and why this is so big. I don't know about you, but I, when I was in middle school, I drove around with my dad to a lot of different places. So we'd be in the car together going, and very often a car would cut out in front of us, or we'd catch like a yellow light that really quickly turned to a red light, and my dad would have to stop on the brakes very quickly in an instance. But immediately, every time, he would stick his arm out so my head didn't like crush the dashboard. And there was like blood everywhere, okay? So he'd stick his arm out, right? But his arm being moved was motivated out of love. I don't want my son to the dashboard, so when I know I've got a brake heavy, I'll move my arm and do that. That way I know his safety and protection is secure and guaranteed. Now imagine if I'm going down the road as well with my father again the next day, but instead this time we're on I-20, and we're going down the road, and we're moving at about 70 or 80 miles an hour, and just to watch my dad do the same thing, motivated by love, just to watch him protect me, I slowly begin to undo my seatbelt. And I begin to reach over and I unlatch the door so it's unlocked. And then I even reach for the door handle and I begin to slip out of the right seat as we're moving down the interstate. But all of that just to watch my father come in and rescue me. Like, why would I do that? It doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. It's foolish. It's unloving. Why would I do that just to watch my father come in and protect me to prove that he can do it? It makes no sense. Yeah, this is what Satan is tempting Jesus to do. And because Jesus is not foolish, because he is not unloving, he doesn't partake in the enticement of sin. He says no. He says no. What's interesting to me is that Satan actually uses scripture here to try and cause Jesus to go into temptation. He uses scripture to entice Jesus. Satan is willing to do whatever it takes to lead both the Christian and the non-Christian into sin and to keep us there. He desires nothing but our destruction. This is who he is. Jesus says, I have come to give life and life abundantly. He has come to steal, kill, and destroy. There are no good motives in Satan. And he's twisting the word of God to cause Jesus to sin, so that way he'll lose it. And if the echoes of the garden are coming to your brain where Satan says, did God actually say you can't eat of the fruit? Did God actually say you will die? Are you sure? These are coming to your brain. That's right, because this is who he is, the father of lies. And he makes sin look good, so we'll take the fruit, so we'll bite. I want to pause for just a second. Uh, speaking of my dad, um, he drives 18-wheelers for a living, and so whenever I was in about middle school as well, he was driving down the road, and he drives the whole East Coast from D.C. down to Miami. And he's driving the East Coast, and he sees like this flea market slash like table stand on the side of the road where they're like selling things. And so he comes over, and he stops his truck, comes by, starts chatting with a person who's there. 
And he goes and he finds this like really nice, pretty looking, dazzling, gorgeous, outside looking good clock. And he goes, hey, my mom loves clocks. It's Valentine's Day. I could be romantic here, okay? Notebook, let's make it happen. So he buys this clock and then he takes it home. He gets home that night and we're hanging out and he gives this clock to my mom. And she takes it and she loves it. She's so filled with joy. She loves this clock, man. It looks great. It's pretty. It's dazzling. This is hers. A great gift. So we put it on the edge of our, uh, or on my, my mom's dresser stand inside of her master bedroom and it's sitting there. But when I grew up, like as Smiths, we just love to like wrestle. So like love language, like how do we do that? Physical touch. So we're just WWE brawl like in the bedroom. That's just how we operate. So we're like wrestling in there and we're hanging out and having a good time. We're laughing and right in the middle of this like chaos of wrestling and being together, like somebody's hand goes, whoa. And I see this clock like sailing across the bedroom and I was like, no, that's not good. We just got that. And so it is sailing across the bedroom. Joker hits the floor and as soon as it hits the floor, I saw the grossest thing I've ever seen in my life. That clock hits the floor and there was about 50 roaches that came out of that clock. I was like, that is gross, man. And then I thought about a dude selling it. And I was like, dude, homie knew what he was doing, man. He nailed it, bro. It was a perfect sell. He got away with it. But it was so nasty. And I began to think about this clock. And I was like, man, this clock is a perfect picture of sin. And how Satan entices us and draws us into the lures of sin. It looks fantastic on the outside. It looks dazzling. It looks so good. And in the moment, it's everything we desire. And the second we partake of it, we experience nothing but death. Because the end of the road of sin, as Paul says in the book of Romans, leads to death. Our destruction, our demise, sin brings about no good. And this is how Satan operates with us. This is his MO. He will do whatever it takes to lead the believer into sin. This is how he works. So we move into third temptation. Jesus is past. He is successful We're in the last round. Verse 8, Matthew writes, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. If you've noticed, our location changes have been rising in elevation. First, we were in the wilderness. Then we're at Jerusalem on the temple. Now we're on the mountaintop. And Satan is here sitting with Jesus along the mountain ridge. And he says, hey, listen, you see all the kingdoms of the world and their glory before you. The perspective and view is great. I know you came to purchase the kingdoms, but how about this? What if I were to give them to you right now? What if... What if you were to just bow down and worship me and I'll give these to you right now? This is what you came for, right? This is why the Father sent you on mission to purchase the nations of the earth. I'm telling you, I'll give them to you right here. But you've got to worship me. Bow down and worship me. See, the third temptation moved from simply enticing to sin to just a bold proclamation of, I won't worship. At the heart of Satan is pride. And Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. This concept of kingdom is a thread throughout Matthew's gospel. It's used 55 times. And again, this is why the father sent Jesus on mission. 
that Jesus would establish his kingdom, inaugurate the kingdom of Christ, that he would come in. But the road of establishing this kingdom would not be one of ease or of a shortcut. The temptation on a platter right here is I can give it to you right now. You want it? I'll give it to you. The road of establishing the way of Jesus is going to be one of suffering. In order to faithfully in order to faithfully obey the Father, it will be a road of suffering. And to bring in this kingdom, to have the nations of the earth, to purchase them, is the road of the cross. It's a road of suffering. Anybody who would follow Jesus, this is our road as well. There's a moment right in, right before Jesus goes to the cross. It's in fact one of the greatest pressure-packed moments before outside of the cross itself. And Jesus is here in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's with his closest friends. Peter, James, and John, and he says, hey, my soul is sorrowful unto death. Like, I know the pain, the agony, the suffering I'm about to experience at the cross, and I'm asking that you would pray with me. Jesus, incredible vulnerability, would you pray with me? Could you stay awake? And Jesus goes, and he checks on the disciples in an hour, and they've fallen asleep. And he goes, and he prays again, and they've fallen asleep. And he says, could you not stay awake even just one hour with me? My soul is sorrowful. And each time Jesus would get away to pray, in each of those moments, here was his prayer. Father, I know the cup that stands before me, but I don't want to have to drink that cup. If there is any way to get around the cross, would you show it to me? If there's any way to avoid the suffering that I'm about to experience, would you show it to me? Yet at the end of each prayer, Jesus says, Father, not my will be done, but your will. Perfect dependence upon the Father. Jesus is our perfect model of faith. No matter how he's feeling in weakness or about to approach the cross, he goes to the Father. This is abiding. This is what it is to live on the word of God. So Jesus is crucified to a cross. He is dead. He is crushed on behalf of humanity so that he may take our sin upon himself. This great exchange, this scandal of grace. And yet three days later, he resurrected from the grave, showing victory over the sin, over the grave, over the devil, over the beast that he came to conquer. And Jesus reigns as the conquering king. In his last moments with the disciples, he's on a mountain again. And he looks at them and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Jesus was going to get the kingdoms anyway, but the road was going to be very different. The Father's plan was going to be very different. It was the road of suffering where Jesus accomplished salvation for the world and where he commissions his disciples to go. Jesus is the perfect son. He is totally faithful. And so why do we worship him? Because he's worthy, because he nails it, because he's perfect. He's the great go-between. He's a perfect revelation of God to man and of man to God. His obedience is absolutely excellent. He's perfect. He's the sinless savior. There is no one like him. Where Israel falls in the wilderness, so do we. There is one who remains faithful. And there is one who is worthy of worship. It's the son of God, Jesus Christ. It's him we exalt. It's him we love. It's him we worship. Father, I pray you would help us to, in the deepest recesses of our hearts, behold Jesus. 
to love him like we love no one else or like we love anything else. God, that he would be the highest treasure in our hearts, the greatest possession that we would lay everything down in order to follow him as he has laid everything down in order to buy us back. God, that we would leave everything behind because reality is we get everything. We get Jesus. Father, I ask you would move in our hearts and by your spirit convict us of the things we need to leave behind in order to live in a way where we pursue Jesus in every single way, where we walk in the newness of life that he provides because he is worthy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.